Jay Paul Getty here, stepping over to the Getty Center for our new tasting menu featuring Getty Spaghetti, only $14.95. You, you don't want to eat trash, do you folks? Griffith J. Griffith here, inviting you to come on up to the Griffith Observatory for one of our world-famous Tuna J. Fifth sandwiches. Why would you eat a tuna fifth sandwich so from the ocean? That idea is poppycock, hogwash. I'm situated upon the hills of Santa Monica Mountains, beautiful, as high as Ernie Hemingway. You pugnacious idiot, you can't cook Getty Spaghetti at such an altitude. Apologies, my dear boy. I can't hear you over the sound of my oil derricks, cashing in bags with dollar signs that up all the way up here at the Santa Monica Mountains. Mount Hollywood. Santa Monica. Hollywood. Santa Monica. Santa Monica. Hollywood. Santa Monica. Hollywood. Play the song, play the song. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode four of L.A. Meekly, the podcast. I'm Daniel. I'm Greg. As usual. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. So sorry. One day professionals will get in here. It's going to be great. (laughs) One day we'll be replaced. (laughs) I should. My robots. Not that robot. I'm so sorry, robot. I'm so sorry, robot. (laughs) It's the sound of us getting replaced. Oh boy. So uh, this episode we are fabricating a rivalry between <laughs> the Griffith Observatory and the Getty Center. I got the idea from, uh, I have the art book for Tony Millionaire and he has a thing. One of his drawings is a, a battle between the observatory and the Getty Center because he felt that the beautiful um, Art Deco observatory has so much, uh, such a beautiful look to it and it's dedicated to astronomy and science and the Getty Center which is dedicated to art is very square and he is, he brought it up and I, I keep thinking about it so when we want to do something on one of the museums we're just like why don't we just do both and make and if, like you said fabricate a rivalry why don't we kill two museums with one <laughs> podcast both of the men have uh, J in their name so we figured that they were rivals mm-hmm. yeah that's a good one yeah not only were they two of the wealthiest citizens ever of Los Angeles but they are also transplants from other parts of the world yeah. that fell in love with Los Angeles and made it their own They both wanted to bring humanity and civility to this city, which it so desperately needs people. (laughs) It was basically Australia before before (laughs) these two men stepped in. We were just New York's prisoners when the city was founded. (laughs) One wanted to to sort of civilize the city through science, and one wanted to do it through art. But they both wanted them to be given freely to the public at all times. So they're two creations— they were on two competing mountain peaks in the city. They've been called cultural bookends to L.A. I like that. And now we're going to settle this once and for all, <laughs> which is better. No survivors. <laughs> Do you have anything else to say before we start? I like that both of these museums are, they have a detached feeling. Uh, not detached from the city, but getting there seems very detached to me, and I kind of enjoy yeah. that. Getting to the Getty, you have to park, but then you you take the little tram ride up the mountain, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, and I'm not in L.A. I'm kind of detached. I'm high above everything. Same thing with the... Observatory where you, you you go up Vermont and you stop you cease being on like Los Feliz Boulevard suddenly you're going through the mountains and everything it feels like you're you're distancing yourself from the city and at the end of it you're high above everything it, they both have that quality that that you're sitting above everything looking at the entire city so let's start with the observatory okay a refresher of who Griffith was mm-hmm. in case you haven't been listening loyally to every episode which I know you are yeah Melissa <laughs> we want notes. Colonel Griffith J. Griffith, as we all know, the J stands for Griffith, Mm -hmm. was born in South Wales in 1850. 
His title of colonel was fake. He bought the favor from the California Guard to give him the title. He came to the U.S. as a teenager and became a reporter and then a mining advisor in San Francisco, eventually starting a mining enterprise of his own in Mexican silver mines, which was how he made his fortune. So then in 1882, he came to L.A. to start making more money in the expanding city's real estate. And on December 8th of that year, he bought all 4,000 acres of Rancho Los Feliz. He was confident. He was an outgoing man of society around town, and he ended up marrying the daughter of a prominent family by the name of Mary Agnes Christina Mesmer. Outgoing like outgoing patients of a mental ward, right? (laughs) Outgoing like her brain. (laughs) Now, the ranch that Griffith bought, whether it was supposedly cursed or not, Mm -hmm. was not turning into the family-friendly amusement area slash productive farmland that he was hoping for. So it would get flooded by the L.A. River in the winter, and it would burn with brush fires in the summer. And no matter what he tried, even an ostrich farm, Mm -hmm. he just couldn't make any money off the land. So in December 1896, he gave 3,015 acres of the ranch to the city as a Christmas gift under the stipulation that it be turned into a public park. He wanted a grand public space for the everyday people, the rank and file and the plain people, as he's so (laughs) non-condescendingly called them. He went to Europe, and he apparently went to Europe and had seen a lot of parks there, and was like, oh, we need something like that over yeah. in my rancho Los Feliz. <laughs> over in Haunted Rancho. <laughs> After this, Griffith went on to get shot in the face by a disgruntled <laughs> farmer and uh, to increase his already heavy drinking habits. Mm-hmm. And eventually, this drinking started to affect his brain, and he started becoming delusional and paranoid. And this all led to the exciting climax when he became convinced that his wife was plotting with the Pope to poison him and take his money. So in 1903, he took her to the Arcadia Hotel, Mm -hmm. made her get on her knees, and shot her in the face. She managed to survive. She called the police. When the warrant was out for him, Griffith said he'd surrender, but he ended up going bar hopping instead. (laughs) And a deputy by the name of Longfellow was sent out to get him and ended up tracking him through a string of bars for 10 miles until he eventually caught up with him. And this was essentially the city's first police chase. Worst honeymoon ever. And this this guy has an observatory named after him. Yeah. Yeah. He has and a, a park. And, oh, let's not forget the entire park. He's a Los Angeles hero. <laughs> he had money. He paid for the park. He had he money. <laughs> he was a hero. He had money. So Griffith went to trial, minus all of his swagger and bravado that used to define him. He got sentenced to two years in San Quentin. He was released after one. Mm-hmm. Now. However. Previously on <laughs> L.A. Meekly. Griffith was now on damage control. So after leaving prison, he never touched alcohol again, and he still supported his now ex-wife and his son financially completely for whatever they needed. And at this time, Griffith decided it was time to realize a grand dream that he had always had for the city of L.A. that started years before when he visited the Mount Wilson Observatory in Pasadena or near Pasadena. So he went up there one night and looked through their giant telescope, which at the time was the biggest in the world. Mm -hmm. And saw Saturn and then proclaimed, I'm not doing the voice because my my throat really hurts. We've already too much of it. (laughs) If all mankind could look through that telescope, it would change the world. Oh, that particular one or just telescopes in general? That telescope. That one. Any other telescope? No. You're not changing anything. More like telenope. 
He wanted all the people of LA to have easy access to such an experience. An observatory on Mount Hollywood, the highest point in the city, had been suggested since 1897, but not until Griffith experienced what he did at Mount Wilson did he really have the desire to make it into the for the people not by the people, by the person, <laughs> place that it is. At the time, observatories were felt to belong only on remote mountaintops away from cities and were meant only to be used by scientists for their research purposes. Mm-hmm. But Griffith could not disagree more. So to try to make good with the city and perhaps salvage his reputation. Horrible in, reputation. Yeah. Hey, he Bar- had money. Bars loved him. <laughs> in 1912, he offered the city $100,000 to build an observatory and scientific research center on Mount Hollywood, but the city was reluctant to take this lunatic's money <laughs> because they, they didn't want anything to do with him. Mm-hmm. So then he sweetened the deal in 1913 by throwing in another $50,000 to build a Greek theater up there as well, which is a topic for another episode. Right. But still, the city was reluctant. And then on July 6, 1919, Griffith died. But before he died, he set up a very well-endowed trust fund to go forward with the projects in his absence when the time was right. Mm -hmm. And partly because of his reputation, the time was not right for several more years. And in the meantime, during the mid-1920s, a new public interest in amateur astronomy as a hobby started to arise as more affordable and amateur telescopes started being produced for sale. But it wasn't until 1930 that the Trust Fund Committee deemed the funds to be sufficient and construction began. Mm. He wanted, what was the three stipulations? It was the telescope, uh, exhibit area, and the... Beetlejuice? Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Uh, what was the third The one? star. The star. <laughs> Uh, the theater, which ended up being yeah. the planetarium, which he, was not around. But hey, I'm getting to that. Okay, well, I'm you know Jay what? I'm J-Paul getting to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, get to it. As an overall director of the yes. observatory, the trust chose George Ellery Hale, mm-hmm. who was the man who also oversaw the creation of the telescope up at Mount Wilson. The building itself was designed by Russell W. Porter, who was the man who started the amateur astronomy craze. But the challenge in designing this building was not only to have it look good on the front where everyone walked in from, but it had to look just as good from behind where everyone else in the city was looking (laughs) at it all the time. So a contest was held to decide who would be the architects of the observatory. And the winners were Justin C. Austin, who also designed the Masonic Temple, on oh, Hollywood Boulevard. Wow, really? The Jimmy Kimmel Temple. Yeah, that's the one. They called it that before there was even a Jimmy Kimmel. There was always a Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> and he also designed City Hall. And the other guy was Frederick M. Ashley. Thanks. <laughs> so to plan the exhibits, the trust got Caltech physicist Edward Kurth, and to help him out, they got an artist named Russell Porter. So the observatory, it finally opened to the public May 14th, 1935, at which point the Griffith Trust transferred complete ownership to the city. The final thing, it cost $400,000 to build and equip, but Griffith had left enough money to the trust fund to ensure that admission would always be free. Now for what they have to offer. Hit me with it. (laughs) In the front sidewalks outside the main entrance, there's a 110 billionth scale rendering of the solar system. Mm -hmm. On the front lawn, there's the Astronomer's Monument, which is a lasting testament, not only to the six astronomers that it pays tribute to, which are Hipparchus, Copernicus, mm-hmm. Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and Herschel. Herschel too? And Doc Brown. <laughs> also James Dean. That great astronomer. 
So it's not only a tribute to them, but it's also a tribute to the New Deal. Because since the observatory was being built during the worst of the Great Depression, the monument was commissioned as part of the New Deal to put skilled workers back to work. So not only does it pay tribute to six astronomers, it was built by six different sculptors, one of whom was George Stanley, who's the guy who also created the Oscar statue. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. It was modeled after Copernicus. <laughs> Got that body. <laughs> that golden body that just won't quit. Inside the observatory, also since this was the Great Depression, mm -hmm. fine building materials were really low in price at the time. Yeah. So the trust fund had a lot of money. And they were able to construct the interior out of all the finest materials, which normally would be too expensive. So there's bronze, there's marble, travertine, and just really ornate woods. Mm -hmm. On the outside, the exterior was going to be made out of terracotta. But as it was being built in 1933, a huge earthquake hit Long Beach. Oh, right. And it scared everyone. So they decided to make the building out of stronger materials. That, that's smart of them. To look at a disaster, like a, a natural disaster, like an earthquake, and be like, you know, we should we should keep an eye out for things like that. Who would think to design a large building perched, hanging for dear life on the side of a giant mountain? Who would think to make that earthquake proof? Earthquakes hit grounds. They don't hit mountains. <laughs> mountains Sun. ground. Mountains ground. <laughs> so thanks to earthquakes and depressions. Thank you, earthquakes and depressions. <laughs> The building is both beautiful, but also durable. Yeah. So the first thing purchased for the observatory was the giant $14,900 telescope Ooh. that's still there today. Yeah. It was a good telescope, but because of the proximity to the lights of the city, it was never considered to be capable of actually doing serious research, but it was actually perfect for photographing the moon and other planets. The moon's not a planet. Don't you know anything? Oh. We're recording this from the moon. Earth is our moon. We finally made it. We can finally, do this on the moon now. They finally sent a podcast to the moon. We're sponsored by uh, Cheez-Its, where the moon is made of cheese, and thank you for listening. That's where they get it. <laughs> the Cheez-It mines on the moon. Those poor kids went in those Cheez-It mines, they never came out. <laughs> they found a giant monolith made of Cheez-Its. I just... don't get movie references. I don't get them. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's a book, too. <laughs> but yeah, it, it contributed, actually, to quite a lot of science, in fact. Up to 600 visitors a night look through this telescope today, and over 7 million people have looked through it overall, which is more than any other public telescope in the world. That's great. Yeah. And in 1955, a second slightly smaller telescope was bought for the museum from an amateur astronomer in Whittier who used to have it mounted on top of his car, and he would just drive around looking at things. Wow. I don't know how a car in the 1950s didn't crumble under a giant telescope. Those cars are the strongest things they were just little tanks you can own. Take the gun off and sell it to them. <laughs> Why would you want to drive? Oh, okay, never mind. I th Why did I think there he was... was? I had the thought that he was trying to drive and look through the telescope. <laughs> I guess you could park. Periscope up. <laughs> also around the perimeter of the building, there's various coin-operated telescopes that you can use to look at the city below. Inside the building is a solar telescope that you can use to look at the sun during the day that's been with the observatory since it first opened. Also inside there is a Tesla coil, mm -hmm. which was was donated in 1937, but it was missing a few parts. So one of the workers there rebuilt it with the help of a guy named Ken Strickfaden, who, for the second time in a row, the man who did the special effects for the original Frankenstein movie. Really? Yeah, he's back. That, yeah. yeah, Frankenstein is uh, a child of both these men. <laughs> he was born out of a Tesla coil. <laughs> you were saying... So the coil produces 500,000 volts of electricity. In comparison, an average light bulb produces around 120. They also have a camera obscura as well. Yeah. 
and the giant Foucault pendulum right when you walk in. It's wonderful to just stare at, uh, come back to a half hour later and see where it's at. And you just missed the peg and getting knocked over. you just missed it. And it makes no sense. <laughs> and everyone's high-fiving because it was so cool. <laughs> and then you go and you kick them all down. <laughs> you want to see how we orbit? That's how we orbit. I'll show you gravity. <laughs> I love that stupid pendulum. Damn it. I love it. We all love it. Sometimes I don't even make it past that. Takes There's me, more in that observatory? <laughs> takes me an hour to find parking. The Griffith Pendulum. <laughs> pendulum, pendulum Mansion. Did you know that was called the Foucault Pendulum? <clears throat> Did I pronounce it wrong? No, I just, that's all I know about the pendulum, other than it's neat and I like it. And so goes Greg's research. <laughs> <laughs> more just opinion. <laughs> also in the main rotunda is the city council proclamation accepting Griffith's gift of the park. So the actual document is in there. The centerpiece of the main part of the observatory is the planetarium. Yes. When Griffith was still alive, movies were still really young, but he understood how powerful of an emotional impact that they could have on people. So he wanted to have a theater inside the observatory to immerse people in the majesty of the universe. Planetariums weren't invented <laughs> until 1930 in Germany after Griffith was already dead. So he figured the best way to convey all the emotions that he wanted was through a standard movie theater. This planetarium at the Griffith Observatory, it's the third oldest one in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Chicago and Philadelphia got them before us, as usual. God, East Coast to West Coast. You know how hard it is to transport a planetarium? <laughs> but our planetarium was the first that was actually part of an observatory, mm. and it has one of the largest domes in the world at 75 feet. By the time it gets to us, it's perfected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did it right. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, punk sweeps from England, it gets to New York, and it's still okay, but when it gets over here, man. When it gets here, we're all some 41. <laughs> it's also one of the few to have a live speaker during the shows. Mm -hmm. He's just another actor. I didn't know that. I don't know why. That there's a live speaker? No, I love those live speakers. I didn't know they were actors, though. I thought they, I thought they were, like, actual scientists. No. They're Scientists really are not that eloquent. Hi. <laughs> oh boy. I don't know how to hold this orb. Behold. <laughs> the observatory has always actively promoted public interest in astronomy and science in general, and it's always done its part to help out the LA community. They were one of the first learning facilities to host regular school visits. Mm -hmm. So now about 50,000 school kids visit every year. Not the class from my sister's school because they showed up late when they were invited and they were banned wow. from the observatory. Wow, really? You can get From banned? traffic. Wow. And then, oh, Griffith, you know who I love that is Griffith. Griffith. <laughs> he would shoot everyone in the eye if he found that out. Get those late kids out of here before I shoot them out of a building. <laughs> There's no windows up here. You know why? <laughs> so during World War II, they set up a large air raid siren mm -hmm. uh, right next to the observatory to warn the city of any attacks. The planetarium also taught naval aviator squadrons how to navigate by the stars. During the war itself, they were forced to close at night for fear that the lights would attract bombers. Right. But regardless, during this time, the planetarium shows were so popular that they were sold out up to 10 weeks in advance. Oh my God. After the war, mm -hmm. the focus of the teachings of the observatory switched from basic principles of what is in the sky and why it's there, which is what they were focusing on since the beginning. And they more focus now on space travel, which was starting to become a real possibility. And in doing this, they helped to legitimize to the public that Space travel is very real, and it's coming, <laughs> coming soon to a space near you. In the 60s, 26 Apollo astronauts were trained at the observatory on right. star identification and celestial navigation. 
1969, Dr. William J. Kaufman III became the youngest director at any major observatory in the U.S. at age 27. 27. 27. He brought to the collection some of the lunar rocks from the moon trips. Oh, okay. In 1972, the planetarium had its first show in Spanish. In 1973, the observatory had the first laserium show in the U.S., and where they used lasers to make all these cool images on the dome at the oh, planetarium, okay. and they set it to classical music and Pink Floyd. How how very 70s that is. Yeah. How fitting. They jumped right mm-hmm. on board. This dark side of the moon thing, I, I, I like it. I don't the like theme. that old dark side. <laughs> moon. All I heard was moon. All I heard was moon, honestly. And I just bought the album. I don't even know what it's about. So a big part of the observatory's role has been to dispel people's superstitious and mm-hmm. sometimes ignorant notions about how the universe works. And in 1982, when all the planets kind of grouped together on one side of the sun and everyone thought the world was going to descend into chaos (laughs) and a giant earthquake was going to hit California, they had special programs there in the planetarium explaining what was actually happening. And when I read that, I was like, people were idiots back then. But in 2012, when everyone (laughs) thought that the world was going to end because of the Mayans, they put on a special program to explain to people what was going on so that everybody wouldn't be scared. It's nice that there's an institution that will pull your pants down and spank the (laughs) ignorance out of you. It's nice that there's an institution dedicated (laughs) to that. Snap out of it. (laughs) Pull your pants up and get out of here. And thank us. Say goodbye to the pendulum on your way out. Now, by the late 90s, the observatory was starting to look a little run down. Mm -hmm. The official diagnosis was that it had been loved to death (laughs) from all the visitors over the year. Yeah, Uh, like a porn star. (laughs) A little run down. And during the weekends, it would just be too crowded in there to even enjoy being in it. (laughs) So on January 6, 2002, after being open for 67 years straight, the observatory closed for a four-year, $93 million renovation to make the place more high-tech and give it more than double the public space. They reopened November 3rd, 2006. The front entrance is pretty much the same, except for the the giant elevator that's like right outside in the front. But the planetarium got renamed the Samuel Ocean Planetarium, who was a L.A. philanthropist. He also had 10 buddies who they tried to break into a casino together. Was it the same guy? Samuel Danny Ocean. Yeah, yeah. Samuel Danny Ocean <laughs> and his 10 friends. <laughs> I do get movie references. Those doors, the, fir- the front entrance doors are massive. They're you know, beautiful, but they're also like... And hard to open. Hard, Very hard to open. You got to prove that you have the might of the heavens. Don't go on a it. date if you've never opened those doors. You got to go there first and be like, okay, is anyone looking? <laughs> I feel like anyone. Jack and the Beanstalk, like trying to open the giant's door. It's like, come on, come on. <laughs> My legs are just like screeching against the pavement. <laughs> The planetarium was completely redone. They Mm -hmm. took out all 600 seats that had been in there since 1964, which were called the most uncomfortable seats in the Milky Way. (laughs) And they replaced them. Scientist joke. Love them. I assume they're talking about the candy bar. (laughs) They replaced them with just 300 seats, but they're really comfortable. Yeah, yeah. And by the 90s, Zeiss... Who, would, who made their projector, they were no longer making replacement bulbs for the Mark IV that they had. Mm-hmm. So they had resorted to customizing street light bulbs to keep it running oh for years. But then in the renovations, the Friends of the Observatory, which is an organization that was co-founded by Griffith's grandson's wife, and they helped maintain the observatory. Why his wife and not him? Because he knew his, yeah, he knew his, so. great, his grandfather. <laughs> they bought them a new $7 million Zeiss Universarium Mark IX, which is the most advanced projector in the world. It's capable of recreating how the night sky looked at any moment in history. And it's that planetarium, yeah, I could see it. Yeah. It's a great planetarium. It's a fun program to see the sky at every moment. <laughs> 
And this was December 4th, year one. This is the Big Bang Theory from this seat. Now this is the Big Bang Theory. Big Bang Theory. They watch the, the show Big Bang Theory. My god, my brain. The thing can, it can also re- replicate every episode. Of <laughs> so then up on the roof, the copper domes that were covering the telescope, they were shined up really nice. Mm-hmm. Biggest of all, they added everything downstairs was new. That oh. wasn't there before. Everything downstairs was new. Oh, a cafe, really? gift shop, 200 seats, Leonard Nimoy Event Horizon Theater, which hosts lectures, educational films. They put all sorts of new exhibits. So you can weigh yourself on any planet. You oh, can spin the planets with they're full of goo, and then you get yelled at. And you get yelled at. There's uh, Albert Einstein with his finger. Yeah, you yeah. touch the finger. I touch, yeah, you touch the finger. Yeah, it's good luck to touch the finger. Mm-hmm. What's that painting where Adam's oh, touching God's the, finger? Uh, creation of man. The creation. I like to play creation. Whatever man. it is. <laughs> And I love calling him Mark Twain, by the way. <laughs> There's a timeline of the universe down there made out of celestial-themed jewelry. Mm-hmm. There's the largest stone meteorite in California. There's Apollo moon rocks. There's a 152-foot-long, 20-foot-high single-image photo of a portion of the sky that contains over a million galaxy stars and other objects. It's the biggest celestial picture in the world. The observatory, it's had a monthly magazine since 1937 called the Griffith Observer. That keeps you abreast of recent celestial news. It is uh, very astronomy-driven. When the internet came around, they had the first website in the city. Oh, really? Yeah, they have free telescope viewings, obviously. They have free star parties, which is the only party I'll willingly go to. (laughs) They have free sunset walks where they point out everything that's in there. They put up a weekly sky report online telling you what you can look out for in the sky that week. Their website has the moon phases, when the sun rises, when it sets, where the planets are at that moment. Over 75 million people have visited the observatory over the years. All of this for free. No exorbitant parking fees. Nope. You might have to park at the bottom of the mountain. Any physical damage brought upon your person, it's worth it because it's free parking. It's the most visited observatory in the world, and it's been referred to as the hood ornament of Los Angeles. I can agree with that. I was just about to say it's one of the most uh, visible things other than the Hollywood sign. If the city was Flava Flav, it would be our clock. Yeah. You know, I feel one step above that. I feel like the Hollywood sign might be Flava Flav, and the observatory is Chuck D., uh, the observatory, it's 1,134 feet above sea level. It's open every day except Mondays. When the space shuttle was coming to L.A., they made a special point to fly over the observatory That's so great. everyone could look at it. The observatory is also a movie icon in its own right. It's very theatrical in its appearance, and its its location is just itself very dramatic, yeah. which is part of what Griffith, who was a showman, had always intended. Because of its both classic and futuristic look, it drew a lot of sci-fi movies to it. Before they were even open, they were used in a movie called The Phantom Empire, which was a Gene Autry western slash sci-fi movie. Ooh, that sounds good. I know. I'm sure it wasn't, but still. Yeah, it's like Cowboys and Aliens. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. watch either one of them, though, and I'm not going to. I didn't to. watch Cowboy. I didn't watch Alien. <laughs> it was also the palace of Ming the Merciless in Flash Gordon. Okay. They filmed Terminator, The Rocketeer, House on Haunted Hill, Bowfinger, and countless student films. <laughs> Most importantly, it was the centerpiece of Rebel Without a Cause. They have a bust of James Dean on the spot where they had the knife fight. Anything else to say about James Dean? And about James Dean in particular? <laughs> uh, he wasn't a chicken. He's willing to do almost anything to prove that. Much like Marty McFly. And I believe the tunnel on the way up to the observatory is the one that's used in 
Back to the Future 2? I think it is. I, I think always so. think that when I go into it and I get panicked that Biff is going to hit me. And then you you try to sing Back to the Future, but you end up singing the Jurassic Park theme song. <laughs> I also, I want to say that it was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It is. Yeah. I read that. I don't remember what scene, but I, I remember yeah, I read the tunnel that. scene. The big it's tunnel It's the tunnel scene. scene where Biff is chasing Roger Rabbit. <laughs> you know, I think it's <laughs> the same bridge. saved at the last minute. <laughs> By James Dean. Doc Brown was in both movies. Just put that together right now. Oh my God. Christopher Lloyd, that's his name. No, his name is Doc Brown. Some people feel that Griffith created all of this just as an attempt to win back public favor, but there, it feels just as likely that his desire to make to give this to the city was sincere. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. I don't know. Yeah, it is. It is a nice last move, even though they didn't spend the money until he was dead and he had tarnished his good name. I mean, let's not forget that everybody who came after who was responsible did a fantastic job. Yeah. And there's almost no Without lag. shooting their wives. Exactly. In the eye. There's no lag. And it doesn't seem from what we read that there's any lag in behavior from anybody. Everyone seemed like they're at the top of their game. Yeah. So, I mean, they got the best men for the job. Exactly. No women, though. But it seemed like, yeah, like you're right. It is a sincere gift from a crazy person yeah. who, who could not have seen how good it turned out. Yeah. yeah. His wife also couldn't see how good it turned out. <laughs> Let's go Getty. Ready for Getty? I'm ready for spaghetti. Do we make that joke already today? I think we met him. Get out. You get out Getty now. Out. Getty out of here. <laughs> Round two. Round two. In this corner, we have J. Paul Getty. The J stands for Griffith, as we know. <laughs> he was born December 15th, 1892 in Minneapolis. In 1903, his family moved to Oklahoma as part of his father's very successful oil business. In 1905, his family moved again to Los Angeles, where he attended the Harvard Military Academy, which is now Harvard Westlake. Is that right? And he also went to Polytechnic High School, which I'm not sure where that is. Uh, say Pasadena. Polytech? I thought, uh, yeah, I don't know where it's at, but I've heard the name a lot. He was 13 when he moved here, and then he spent the rest of his time before he moved to Oxford in California. So he's more of a resident than than uh, Griffith. Yeah, was. he he spent his formative years here. Thank you, formative years. Yeah. That's a good way to put what I just said. When he was here, he ended up going to college at both USC and UC Berkeley, and then, like you said, he went to Oxford in 1914. At age 21, he decided it was time to take his place in the family's oil business. So mm -hmm. he returned to Oklahoma, intending to make his fortune, which he did in two years. Mm -hmm. By 1916, he had made a million dollars, and he decided to retire and move back to L.A. to live a lavish and sexy life. But then in 1919, he wanted to start working again. Mm -hmm. So he rejoined the oil company, and then he started making millions upon millions more. He, he really made his mark during the Depression when all the experts were advising against getting involved in oil. He did the exact opposite. He bought up controlling shares of several oil companies mm -hmm. while they were still cheap. Once the Depression was over, he came out so successful, he was able to buy up more and more oil companies, eventually forming the Getty Oil Company, which was one of the biggest companies in the world. He was an interesting man. Five foot ten, 180 pounds, he spoke eight languages, he was very health conscious, he chewed his food 33 times before he swallowed it, <laughs> he would walk for two miles every day, he would wear one of those things that counted his steps also. Wow, I guess he could afford something like that. Those cost millions of dollars <laughs> back then. It was just the guy he wore around his waist counting his steps. <laughs> Seven, eight, eight. He was very rich. But he wasn't really in the public eye until 1957 when an article in Fortune magazine suggested that he was probably the richest private citizen <laughs> in the bad. world. And then that claim was made official by Guinness World Records in 1966. 
By the time that Getty died on June 6, 1976, at age 83 of a heart failure, his fortune was so vast that it was hard to say exactly how much he was worth, but it was estimated anywhere between 2 and $4 billion. Oh he left California for good in 1951, but he always identified himself as a citizen of Los Angeles. He liked being rich, but money to him was just a byproduct. What he really loved was just actually doing business. Yeah. He usually worked 16 or 18 hours a day every day. And he was a little power crazy. He liked to be boss. And for a while, he made his executives all stand at attention whenever he would enter a room like Darth Vader. Crazy people. Yeah. I heard that he was a, a penny pincher. And he used to like... When yeah, he, he was. He, he used to do business out of town. He used to do it at like the cheapest hotels. And his briefcase apparently was like held together by string. <laughs> Just the finest of string. The finest of string. <laughs> Made from the hardest to find animals. One time also at a meeting, an executive was making a proposal and Getty cut him off and he said, who does this fellow think he is? Why, he's nothing but a damn office boy. An executive, he said that too. And then he lifted his like his hand and started choking him. So you can't see what I'm doing, but I'm pretending Darth Vader's choking. Uh, Don't oh try to frighten me with your oil ways. <laughs> like you were saying, he, pr he prided himself in his thriftiness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He, he was bragging about washing his own socks. He said, I've done it and I'll probably do it again. <laughs> he just knew how to relate to people. Rich people. They just don't get don't it. Don't get it. Something he was not so good at was relationships. Go on. He was married five times. He was divorced five times. No. All the women he married were younger than he was. His business drive and his desire for power alienated him from all of them. I don't see how that's even possible. <laughs> Women love power. <laughs> they love clean socks. What was the problem? A man who cleans his own socks. <laughs> Sign me up. Four out of the five relationships didn't last longer than four years. Mm -hmm. His feelings about this at the time were that a lasting relationship with a woman is only possible if you are a business failure. And that the only regret he had about his divorces was that he doesn't like anything to be unsuccessful. Business failure. So that's the ticket. That's what I got to try. <laughs> his dad was really proud of what he made out of his business, but he was shocked by his like lack of ability to have any sort of lasting relationship with anybody. So out of the $10 million that his dad had when he died, he only left him 500000 Only. Only. But I'm uh, sure he made it into like 45. Yeah, I'll parlay that. <laughs> Be better at the horse races. Bought the horse, made sure it won. Bought all the horses. <laughs> made sure they all won. <laughs> so women weren't his only problem. Being as rich as he was, everybody, of course, wanted a piece of what he had. Right. He got more than 3,000 letters every month from complete strangers that were just asking him for money, even though in reality he never carried more than $25 on him. <laughs> and whenever he'd go out to dinner with a large group of people, the bill was always handed right to him. <laughs> and when he was tipping, if he only gave a little... They would say he's cheap. If he gave a lot, they would call him a show-off. Mm -hmm. He was constantly being overcharged for things, and he never knew who all the people who actually liked him. Did they like him for himself, or did they just like him for his money? In 1973, listen. Yeah, I'm listening. I'm not making teardrops. It jobs. ain't easy being rich. <laughs> In 1973, his grandson, J. Paul Getty III, was kidnapped in Italy and held ransom for $16 million. Wow. At first, Getty thought it was just a con by the grandson trying to get more money from his, from his old grandpa. And then he got a finger in the mail. A, listen to this. A second ransom letter was sent that never got delivered because of an Italian postal strike. So then the kidnappers cut off his grandson's <gasps> ear and mailed it to the newspaper. And then wow. after, yeah, after this, Giddy, Giddy, 
Giddy Getty. After this, Getty still refused to pay the ransom because it wasn't I mean, good ear. It wasn't. It wasn't the good ear. <laughs> How many ears do you need? <laughs> when I when I heard this, I was like, oh, that's horrible. But then I kind of thought about it. It kind of makes sense. His reasoning was, I have fourteen other grandchildren. If I give one penny now, then I'll have fourteen kidnapped grandchildren. Wow. Which kind of makes sense. I could see that as a Charles Bronson movie. <laughs> <laughs> Going for Getty. <laughs> Eventually, the ransom was lowered to three point two million that Getty helped partially pay for. But the experience left the grandson so traumatized, he eventually became addicted to drugs and drinks, which eventually led to him becoming blind, paralyzed, and speechless. This kid's mom also died of a drug overdose. Another one of his grandsons founded Getty Images, which has no affiliation with the Getty Museum, which I've always wondered, <laughs> so it doesn't. But by the end of his life, much like Griffith, he was filled with really deep regrets about how he lived. And he is quoted as saying... I hate and regret the failure of my marriages. I would gladly give all of my millions just for one lasting marital success. Most of this can be seen in the film There Will Be Blood. <laughs> in the end, he beats... Uh, I don't want to spoil it. So Getty was also a, a slightly prolific writer. He had a lot of witticisms. I bet. He was famous for saying, The meek shall inherit the earth, but not its mineral rights. <laughs> Which is our new motto. Yeah. He wrote two books, My Life and Fortunes in 1953 and How to Be Rich in 1965. He wrote a lot of articles in many different publications, including he had a regular column in... In Playboy magazine from 1961 to 65. Right? Yeah, a constant theme in his articles was how strongly he felt that men were barbarians and that art and culture were the only civilizers and that a man who can't appreciate art is no man at all. He himself had a personal collection of art worth over $4 million. So he really strongly felt that art should be readily available to the public. Mm -hmm. He gave a lot of art to LACMA starting in 1948. In 1953, he set up the J. Paul Getty Trust to provide for the diffusion of artistic and general knowledge. And this led to the opening of a small museum in 1954 on his Malibu ranch, the foundation of which being Getty's personal collection. Oh, that was on his ranch? I didn't know that. Yeah, the, all that land was his. He had okay. this huge area in Malibu. The boo. He called the, it the, the boo. boo. Yeah, the boo. The M boo. As the collection began to grow out of this tiny museum, they built a bigger one on the same property known as the Getty Villa in 1974. But Getty was really tough about giving the museum any of his money. But when he died, over $661 million of his estate was left to it. And in today's dollars, that's over $2 billion. My Lord. And this made the Getty Villa the richest museum in the world, which made the rest of the art community really nervous because they thought the Getty was going to buy everything and not leave anything for the rest of us. But uh, it was not the case. They were really respectful of a country's patrimony over certain pieces of art, right. which I'm going to tell you got lost later on. <laughs> Eventually, the collection grew too big for the villa. And then after an eight-year construction, the Getty Center opened December 16th, 1997 at a cost of $1.3 billion, the whole complex. I also read that there was very little stipulations for what to do with the money, as long as it went towards some, like, something uh, to art. enrich oh, yeah, arts. Art. And, <laughs> yeah, enrich. The check was made out to art. <laughs> <laughs> What's an art's last name? No. <laughs> the architect of the building of the Getty Center was Richard Meyer. Mm -hmm. It's made out of 1.2 million square feet of travertine stones that were brought in from Italy. They needed so much of this stone that Meyer had to invent a new tool to cut it out faster to meet up with the demand. The stones on the outside, they're not polished, so you can see a lot of fossils in them, actually. Really? The, the fossil of Griffith is in. <laughs> but it's like a where's Waldo. Like, is that his fossil? 
No, or is that just be. the trilobite that looks like Griffin? <laughs> Great lengths were gone to to make it earthquake-proof, of course. Yeah. It was designed to let as much natural light in as possible. Its central garden has over 500 varieties of plants in it. There's a million-gallon store tank of water and a helipad right next to it, just in case there's any brush fires. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the Getty Center, it's not just a museum. It's a whole cultural complex. Yeah. In addition to the museum, there's the Getty Research Institute, the Getty Foundation building the Getty Conservation Institute and the J. Paul Getty Trust Administrative Offices. He was so vain. Yeah. It's all yeah. about him. He had a little stamp with his name. That's mine. That's mine. That's <laughs> mine, mine, mine. Mine. I went to the Getty to do research for, I was taking a, a course on history of books and libraries and they had something on like illuminated manuscript that I needed. I never really liked the Getty. Yeah. I, I never really cared for it. And I went there to do that project and I, they like took me through all these secret rooms and they had me in a room between rooms and it was so like exciting to be yeah i feel like the rest of the complex that we're not allowed into is a lot cooler it is than the part we can go to they had this it was a very it was a room with a very tall ceiling and it was like the biggest wall of books <sighs> and folders i've ever seen and it was just so well designed like there's like a big wall that's just red padded stuff uh, and it has a window it was just so neat to be in the in the inside of it like to not have to be in the gallery or the yeah. yard so it's it's a lot better than a lot of people get to see the the tram that takes you up to the museum it's the longest in the usa and the third longest in the world while the museum used the, to be really what the tram is the, long the tram is the longest in the usa is that right yeah okay unless disneyland no it said the longest tram okay if anyone challenges that i'm, I'm just thinking of, I, I guess that's the problem is i always underestimate how long it is disneyland is a monorail you're the smartest person i know right now how about now? <laughs> you lost it. <laughs> so while the museum, they used to be, like I said, they used to be really strict with their integrity. Mm -hmm. The standards got a little lax and it developed a history of not being strict enough when it came to buying things that could have potentially been obtained illegally. Mm -hmm. And this culminated in the late 90s and the, into the first decade of the 2000s when Italy and Greece took the Getty to court after they refused to return several items that they were accused of buying from sources that had stolen and smuggled them out of their native wow. countries. And eventually the Getty, they agreed to return 40 of the 46 items in question. All the charges were dropped, but relations with Greece and Italy were very severely strained. Nowadays, the Getty is very culturally oriented. Mm -hmm. And while the collection might not be the most impressive, the place itself is very alive. Yeah. Yeah. They show a lot of classic movies at their theater. I watched Elvis movies there. Oh, that's right. Getty loved Elvis. They have free outdoor concerts. They have live theater, lots of talks and lectures. They have the Saturdays off the 404 where there's live music and food and drinks mm -hmm. out there. They have a really cool Twitter and Tumblr page that gives you a lot of art news and a lot of just different things. The museum is free, but $15 to park there, $10 after 5 p.m. Oh. They close at 5.01. <laughs> I read when they first opened, what, in 1997, the parking was $5. And I was kind of like, oh, remember when parking was $5? But I, I could think in 1997... I would have been furious too. <laughs> like five dollars, five nineteen ninety seven dollars. <laughs> uh, it's a very lovely place. I don't like it as much as the observatory, but it's it's in a hey, nice we're spot. Saving our opinions for the you closing are thoughts. right. I thought the parking was a closing thought. I thought we would agree that the parking was a closing thoughts for both of them. I have more. You go on after parking. The Getty was also the Starfleet headquarters in Star Trek Into Darkness. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. There's a, What's, what is our relation to the original Starfleet Academy? We are in the original Starfleet That's Academy. Right. Spock is recording. Mm -hmm. It and was filmed at CSUN. We were there in the summer when they were filming and everyone was dressed in red. And we yeah. had a picture. So when there's some explosion on the thing, 
if you look really closely, you can't see us. Mm. <laughs> There's also a picture somewhere out there of Getty with Ringo Starr that I couldn't find, but oh, I really want to see. We have to find yeah. it. In this, in this fabricated rivalry, one voter has already chosen sides, a 125-pound mountain lion named P-22 Ooh. that used to live in the Santa Horrible Monica name. Mountains. Hey, it's a beautiful name. You don't know their culture. <laughs> It, it used to live in the Santa Monica Mountains near the Getty, but it didn't want to compete with the other mountain lions that were in the area. So it moved, crossing both the 101 and the 405, wow. and surviving, it moved to Griffith Park, and it now prowls around the observatory at night. My lord. I can't even, in a car, make it across the 405. I don't know how mountain lion did it. What kind of car does a mountain lion drive? Range Rover. <laughs> safari. A cheap safari. Mountain lions don't live in the safari, idiot. What do you, what's the joke? <laughs> yeah, they don't live in the safari. <laughs> safari lions. The great safaris of Africa. <laughs> it's strange that both men had such good intentions, and they're both places that are meant for enlightenment, like public enlightenment. They don't charge. They're both good places to do research, and, but they, neither one of them really got to see their places come to no, life. No, they didn't. It's funny that the Getty is an art institute built from oil, an oil mm -hmm. career. And the observatory is a place for science built by mining. mining. Yeah. It's kind built of by miners. By miners. <laughs> the minor 49ers, yeah. They were all underage. That's how they built it so cheap in the Depression. <laughs> Those little hands. <laughs> just, just carved. Yeah, it was, they were built from the earth. Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting. And they were put on top of the earth to dominate it. Mm -hmm. And these are monuments to men. And they, they should compete. And who cares if there's a big ridge in the middle and you can't see, you know, they're divided. I remember being on the um, the walkway of the observatory. There was a British couple, and they were looking so hard for the Getty, and they were so <laughs> upset that you couldn't see one from the other. And like, well, what would it be? And I was like, it's it's on the other side of those mountains, and they were just so frustrated. Comparing the men, to sum up, they both had deep regrets in their lives. I love it. They both had failed marriages love it, love for it. very different reasons. Very different reasons. Getty believed in art for the people. Griffith believed in science for the people. The buildings themselves, one celebrates science and learning, one celebrates art and culture. Mm -hmm. The Getty was built to celebrate the day with its big windows and all the light that it lets in. Right. The observatory was built to celebrate the night. Mm. It's so, I want to say dank, but it's not, <laughs> it's not gross in there, but no. it's just, it's very dark in yeah, there. Yeah, it's very dark in there. It's very uh, unnatural light, but it's mm -hmm. obviously how it plays out. Who wins? We should go to both. We should take the bus to the Getty so we don't have to pay for parking and then hitch a ride to the observatory <laughs> on, a all the, on a mountain lion all the way to the top. All the way to the front door. Yeah, the observatory is old Hollywood, representing everything that, you know. The Getty like is very Hollywood. bland looking, but I, I, going into this, I was like, well, obviously the observatory is yeah. better. But then I was like, well, the Getty does have, I mean, the Getty has a really cool, they have yeah, so, like cool culture. They're very alive. They're the fair. observatory has stuff on, mm -hmm. but it's more just, uh, it's not as social. Yeah, exactly. It's not yeah. as social as the Getty. The Getty, like I was going to say, it's very like late 90s, early 2000s, where it's yeah. like a gathering place. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a nice living room for the city. I, I think the observatory is our cellar. Yeah. <laughs> Could also be a den, but okay. <laughs> it's a, a cellar. You're just going for that dank feeling, aren't you? <laughs> they both have really cool views, very different yeah. views. Yeah, exactly. You could see the whole ocean at the Getty. Mm -hmm. You get crushed by the buildings <laughs> of the observatory. <laughs> I don't know. What, what do you choose? What's your choice? If I had to pick one, it'd always be the observatory. But going, studying the Getty, studying John Paul Getty, and looking at pictures to do this, I was like, oh, you know what? I do like the Getty more than I keep 
I, I don't give yeah. it enough credit, but I do like the Getty a lot yeah. more than I give it credit I'd for. I'd marry the observatory. Ooh. I'd have an affair with the Getty. <laughs> when, what an affair would be. It would end with the Griffith shooting in the, in the face, right in the face. <laughs> Why do you have Travertine all over your collar? <laughs> it's nothing. Leave me alone. <laughs> Let's go to the arcade. <laughs> we should have done them both separate episodes, but I'm glad that we put them together because we get to see comparisons between the two that we probably wouldn't have realized anyways. Yeah. So I'm glad yeah, we they're didn't. surprisingly similar. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of good things that came out of doing both of these at the same time. So I'm glad that we did it this way. Do you think they ever passed each other on the street, the two men, not knowing? Yeah, they probably bumped shoulders, yeah. and knowing Getty, he lost count of his steps, and he was really mad, and Griffith was just <laughs> Griffith was drunk. Yeah, drunk on his fourth cigar of the hour, and then Griffith just has oil on his arm, because he's just, I imagine, <laughs> that Getty. old bastard. <laughs> I was very interested to learn that Getty was, uh, he wasn't like an alley native, but he did spend a lot of his youth here. He was raised here more than, um, than Griffith was. That's another question. Who is a better, who was better for the city as a person? Was it Griffith or Getty? It's hard to say, really, because... Griffith. Thank you. Can I pick the mountain lion? Is that an off the, the real table? hero. <laughs> real hero of this story. Griffith versus Getty versus P-22. I haven't done enough research about the oil derricks in L.A. and Signal Hill, so I don't really know how or how bad that is for the city. Yeah. I was trying to do research for Venice, but I know that it was, it was kind of uh, rubbed the wrong way by oil. So I don't know. I don't know how much effect Getty had. I mean, I know what he created from this oil empire, mm -hmm. but I don't know its effect on LA, so it's hard for me to say. Griffith, Griffith sounds like a crazy person. Yeah, but he also gave, gave, gave. Yeah. He gave so much. And he created, Griffith Park is, he didn't create it, but I mean, Griffith Park was his. <laughs> he planted well, every tree in the Every park. tree. And the and ostriches. And them all haunted. Yeah. <laughs> Rest in peace, ostriches. Yeah. It's hard, to, it's hard for me to say, but it... Do you have one? I don't have one. Do you have one? I, I feel like Griffith, I mean, I think Getty was more of an L.A. boy, yeah. but I feel like Griffith gave more to the city yeah, than yeah. Getty did. As a transplant, yeah. yeah. So they're I not all bad. They're not, yeah, they're not all bad. I, I, I have a new respect for Griffith in a weird way, even though his story, is, to me, is so interesting mm -hmm. because he shot his wife in the, in the face. Did we mention that he shot his wife? He shot his wife in the face, and she... Only survived by jerking her head at the last second and then fled out of a window. And then what did he do? He went on a, he a, went drinking, on a drinking spree. Binge. <laughs> on a 10-mile drinking binge. An on-foot police pursuit. <laughs> so that settles it once and for all. <laughs> that settles it. <laughs> Shrug. <laughs> Everyone who was uh, clamoring to find out who we would choose... Uh, we barely gave an answer. Mm -hmm. So that's been episode four <laughs> of LA Meekly. We should also mention that by mentioning both of their names that we've uh, been given free admission to both the museums for the rest of our lives. So we've, we've earned... <laughs> they were so generous. We still have to pay for parking. But, I mean, free admission. For our entire lives. It's marvelous. Not just our lives, our progeny's lives. <laughs> so that's another episode. You can visit our Tumblr page, LA-Meekly. I should look that up before I say. Oh, boy. LAMeekly.tumblr.com. We're also on iTunes. Leave and a nice review. A nice, a nice one. Be nice because we're very fragile. I, I will quit the second I get a bad review. Please don't make me do, leave. Do whatever you can. Send money. Mm -hmm. Just go to your local post office and give them money. Yeah, put a dollar sign on a burlap bag. Fill it with whatever. We can use put it as on currency. on a ski mask. Bring your gun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rob the post office. Bring a box cutter to the airport with money. And you'll be fine, I promise. <laughs> so that's it, and uh, catchphrase pending. Let's just watch Fred Mertz videos now. It didn't stop. It didn't stop. It didn't stop. Delete. <laughs> mm -hmm.